0: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription, in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.
1: Hello and welcome to The Edition, The spectators look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. On this episode, we're looking at our Christmas special. The new issue is packed with brilliant writing from contributors including Richard Dawkins, Ian Rankin, Susan Hill, Alec Baldwin and Dominic Cummings. So over the next hour, we'll give you a showcase of the very best in our pages. We'll start with politics. How will the UK's economy recover from Covid-19? And what has the pandemic revealed about the West? Then we'll turn to vaccines. They're hopefully the way out of this crisis. And we'll find out whether a new delivery method used in the Pfizer jab has dealt a mortal blow to future viruses. And finally, we'll cover the books that made 2020, Sam Leith's interview with Mary Gateskill, and why the writer Ella Shafak listens to heavy metal while she works. First up, politics. In the Christmas issue, Fraser Nelson and Katie Balls interview the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak. He tells them that more government borrowing would be morally wrong. And he also talks about his experience of hill farming. James Forsyth, meanwhile, writes about how COVID has woken the West up to the threat posed by China. To talk about their pieces and to give us a roundup of the year, I'm joined by James and Katie. Katie, for the Christmas issue, you spoke to the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, and he's had, as you point out, a bit of a different year to the one he was expecting. How do you think he's handled it?
2: Well, I think if you look first just at polling, he seems to have handled it very well. I think he's the most popular Tory in the country. There was a poll a little while back where I think it said he was the most popular Chancellor in 40 years. So that's one poll, but it, it gives you a sense of the public perception. And I think that with the year ending... The chance has lots of things he can point out in terms of his schemes that have helped to, I mean, effectively put the economy on life support, but have helped people. However, as we say in the interview, Fraser and I this has meant that in his first you know nine ten months I think we're just at ten months now he has borrowed more than Gordon Brown did in nine years so there is clearly a a hefty bill to the decisions he's taken this year and what I was struck by when you're talking to him is uh, there's a big debate going on the Tory party and perhaps more widely though in some areas I think it's less debate which is the, the situation and the economic situation has changed perhaps Permanently, but at least for medium term but historically low borrowing rates so we're entering a period where we don't need to worry about debt and borrowing in the way that previous Tory governments did and you know I think it's something Sajid Javid talked about you know this kind of long these long rates and therefore it's not such an issue to have high borrowing Rishi Sunak was very clear that you cannot rely on historically low borrowing rates and he was talking about the fact that it's not just uh, for economic reasons but it's also a moral duty to future generations and there's a political point too which is if you start to do that what is the dividing line between the Tories and Labour. I think this is quite interesting when you think about the next year perhaps a year after that and how the Tories recover from what has been obviously a very difficult year in terms of coronavirus but what that has done to the economy if you think about the level of borrowing and I think it's clear from Rishi Sunak's comments that there are going to be difficult decisions coming. Now, it might not be tax rises. Who who do you want to go into specifics on that? Boris Johnson said he doesn't want to do mass spending cuts. And we've got to see how quickly the economy comes back. But something is going to have to give for Rishi Sunak's view of the economy to actually go with with the situation
0: we are now in.
1: James, as Katie says, it's been a year of extraordinarily high borrowing and spending. Do, Do you think Sunak's uncomfortable with how he's had to handle this crisis?
0: So, I don't think anyone can be comfortable with the level of borrowing that has taken place this year, but it is also equally hard to see what the alternative is. I mean, the question is, how do you put the public finances onto a sustainable footing going forward? How confident can you be that these low interest rates and the ease with which the government is going to get it, getting its debt away at the moment, and how cheaply it's getting its debt away, is is going to continue? So, so that is the kind of balancing act question. You don't want to act too soon. To snuff out the economic recovery when it starts, but you also want to be in a situation where the government has basically future-proofed itself against another economic shock coming down the track. You know, one of the points he makes in in his interview with uh, Katie and Fraser is that you know you've had the 2008 financial crisis and now this. You know, that, that's two events in the past 12 years when government borrowing has had to shoot up for reasons, and you know, therefore you can't live like this forever because the next time that happens you know you you could you could go over your limits essentially in terms of things so i think that the question then becomes what is the timing and i think this is all complicated by the electoral cycle right the next election is going to be in 2023 or 2024 so do you want to have done some of your consolidation before the election and then go into the election saying we've done some consolidation now and we can now tell you about tax cuts and more public spending to come down the track? Or do you want to wait and fight an election where everyone's saying, but, but what are you going to do about public finances? Are you going to put up taxes? And I mean, that's going to be one of the big political questions for the Tory party next year. Not in the, not as Katie said, not in the first quarter, but towards the back half of the year, when I think the expectations of the economy will be coming back fairly strongly. How do you time this? And how do you try and align the economic and political cycles?
1: And James, how dependent do you think the economic recovery will be on the rollout of the vaccine?
0: Hugely. I mean, I mean, if you look at this, this point that Jonathan Van Tan made, that once you've done the first priority group of the population, phase one, which is about 28.5 million people, I'm told by the spectators, John O'Neill, once you've done that, that accounts for 99% of deaths and hospitalisations. So at that point, all of these restrictions that are so holding back the economy and so suppressing economic activity can go and you would then expect the economy to come back really quite strongly, because there's pent-up demand, economic and social. Households, I think, have saved an average of £7,000 during this pandemic. And so you would expect the economy to come back quite strongly once that happens. But the key question is, how fast can you get to that point? Can you do this quickly enough so that by Easter weekend, April 4th, all those restrictions are going. Now, we've had one week of the vaccine rollout and 138,000 people have been vaccinated. Obviously, that is week one, but, but you've got to massively up that pace if you're going to hit that April target. And also, hitting that April target is very dependent on approval of this Oxford vaccine, of which the UK has lots and lots of doses, on order of 4 million doses ready to go. But you've got to get that approved before you can start injecting people
1: with it. And Katie, did you get a chance to speak to the Chancellor about Brexit? Yes, uh, I think it's one of
2: those ones where it's a very moving picture. So when we spoke to uh, Rishi Sunak last week, I think it definitely means it was very, uh, we are heading towards no deal. Now when I speak to you today, Lara, I think it's a bit more optimism. People are nervously checking those recess dates. The Chancellor's view was ultimately let's wait and see what happens in the next few days. But he said his his preference in the short term is that a deal is the best in terms of avoiding short-term disruption. However, he insisted that deal or no deal, he believed the economic outlook for the country was good and that there were Brexit gains to be had. I think that if you're looking at no deal support, so if we can't reach an agreement, what's in place? It's quite interesting that Rishi Sunak was talking about the fact that businesses struggling with the effects of no deal could actually use covid support schemes so things like furlough loans all those things on offer to, to get them through it which is the sense that i think people do expect some new no deal stimulus but i think the chances point was it's actually quite hard to come up with some of this stuff because some of the consumption stimulus you would normally do isn't really an option when you have lots of laws telling people they can't go out and consume most things so this lever we're more likely to get quite a bit of kind of looking at the coronavirus support already and whether new people need to take that or if there is more more you can do there
1: James just looking ahead slightly more towards next year in your column um, in the Christmas issue you say that the most significant change brought about by Covid is that it has woken the West up to the threat posed by China how exactly has that happened and what do you see happening next year in response to that?
0: I don't think it is the fact that the virus started in China or that the the authorities there kind of sought to cover it up. I think rather it was the what they call the kind of wolf warrior diplomacy that China engaged in. Uh, as the pandemic was raging that shocked people. I mean, people in the UK government were taken aback by the kind of extreme misinformation put out to try and suggest that the US military was somehow behind the virus. Then I think the whole that whole mad scramble for PPE not only alerted Western governments to how reliant they were on Chinese manufacturing, because, you know, you had to get it shipped in from there, but also how different dealing with Chinese companies was from dealing with companies in a democratic state. You had kind of ministers saying, you know, Ugh well, I'm not going to say this now, because if I say this now, the next plane load of PPE might not take off. And I mean, that was a reminder of the very different nature of dealing with China than dealing with, you know, another democratic country. Uh, And, you know, those fears were not unfounded. Look at what happened to Australia. I mean, Australia said, suggested that you should have a independent inquiry into the origins of the virus and the Chinese responded with you know slapping tariffs on their goods and they've continued with that they, they, they are still picking this fight with Australia and I think what I think what someone in the UK government said to me you know, what that reveals is the closer the economic relationship you build with China the more they will try and use that to bully you politically and so I think the big question about next year is you know the West has now woken up to this what does it now do I think you're going to see three things. The first is the the UK government intends to turn next year's G7 meeting into a kind of D10 meeting, 10 democracies. So as well as the normal G7 members, they're going to invite India, Australia and South Korea, three countries absolutely crucial to countering China. The second thing you're going to have to do is something on tech. The, The big issue here is, and what makes China in many ways a more formidable competitor than the Soviet Union was, is its technological prowess you know the fact is that Huawei offers a far a far cheaper 5g solution than any company from a democratic state and i think one of the problems on tech is the west is very divided but the, the us and the eu have very different rules on data and privacy and that's created two kind of separate tech ecosystems i think the west is going to need to find some way of bridging that gap and then i think the third question is, is, is what does joe biden do donald trump did reverse the the, the obama administration's kind of overly passive approach to China's rise. But he was very ill-suited to kind of galvanising the Western alliance to deal with this issue because, you know, first of all, you know, this was not someone suited to the moral aspect of his struggle. We know from his former national security advisor, John Bolton, that he basically seemed to kind of tell President Xi to go ahead with building the camps in which Uyghur Muslims are being held. And secondly, he didn't like building alliances working through multilateral institutions. Something that's absolutely going to be absolutely vital if you are going to be able to counter China in the future. So, I mean, it's a big question whether the West can get its act together next year, having realised that this really is a danger.
1: And James, you mentioned two potential alliances, the D10 and the T12. Can you tell us a bit more about what those might involve?
0: So the D10 would be the idea of taking a kind of group of democratic states and working together there to, to essentially try and contain China. The T12 would be the idea of taking all the various democratic countries with particular expertise and interest in technology and getting them to work together. So, for example, how do you avoid a repeat with 6G of what's happened with 5G? And that means kind of coordinating research and investment into 6G so that you know when 6G comes onto the market there are firms from democratic countries that can build the necessary infrastructure for places because there is absolutely no doubt that China is trying to use its 5G kind of product offering via Huawei to essentially expand its diplomatic influence so how do western states coordinate to prevent a repeat of that situation when it comes to 6G?
1: And just finally having a look back on politics in the year more generally katie how do you think boris's first year in office has has gone
2: i think that it's not gone as he expected to probably few premierships do go as uh the person in charge plans but i think it's quite been quite an exceptional turn of events but i do think how the year started so obviously winning a majority of 80 and i think that twitter me how it started um but i think how the year started in terms of winning that majority of 80 so that was in December. And then in January, all these plans, Brexit was seen to be one of the most important things. So Everyone in number 10 was very keen to play down Brexit, suggest we should talk about domestic issues. And then you had obviously awful months for the entire country, lives lost, mistakes made in the handling. I do think where Boris Johnson um, ends the year is in in a much better place in terms of looking ahead. I mean, not in terms of the immediate, because if you look around, I mean, uh, A large chunk of the country is under tier three. Many other parts are in tier two. There's no expectation of a quick return to being able to see people. But if you look a little bit further ahead, if this vaccine rollout speeds up a bit, if a few other things go in the UK government's favour, you can start to imagine a scenario or a place where by the spring early summer things look a, a lot more like they did well hopefully not weather wise but they look a lot more like they did when boris johnson won that majority of 80 and therefore there is a strong chance that boris johnson can have an agenda which isn't all about coronavirus yes it's going to be about, about the coronavirus recovery yes he's going to have to grapple with the spending issues we discussed in relation to the rishi sunak interview but th- there are other things he can do whereas i think there have been points this year but it has felt as though we could just been this endless cycle for years to come. And I th- I think now there is there is a strong argument that hopefully that can be avoided.
1: Thank you James and Katie. Next, could 2020 be remembered as the year we learn how to beat viruses for good? In the magazine, writer and biologist Matt Ridley writes about the mRNA vaccines and argues that now they've been used successfully for the first time in Pfizer and Moderna's COVID jabs, they could provide templates to quickly immunize people against future infections. To explain all this, Matt joins me now alongside Dr Stuart Ritchie, a behavioural psychologist from King's College London. Matt, in your piece for the Christmas issue, you write that 2020 could be the year that biology dealt a mortal blow to future viruses and illnesses. Can you start by explaining why you think that might be the case?
3: Yes, I think uh, the messenger RNA technology used to make the first two vaccines to have got approval is a very exciting new potential general platform for vaccine development that will enable us to develop vaccines faster cheaper and more safely it's a revolutionary way of doing vaccines and there was no guarantee that it was going to work it has worked there are problems and drawbacks you need a cold chain to store the vaccines and things like that and we don't yet know quite how well it works but given that our problem in the past has always been that it takes several years to develop a vaccine. By the time you've done it, the epidemic's moved on or finished or so on. It's often not very profitable for the pharmaceutical industry to develop vaccines. We've actually been disgracefully asleep at the switch in terms of improving vaccine development as a technology over the last 20 years, given how important it could be. And we entered this pandemic somewhat vulnerable, therefore, uh, it looks like we may have found a technology that can solve that problem. I'm very excited about it, and I think there's every reason to think that you can take this messenger RNA technology and simply adapt it to the next disease very quickly. I mean, it's interesting to note that the Moderna version was actually constructed on the 13th of January this year, one day after the sequencing of the virus genome, and seven days before human transmission was conceded by the Chinese authorities. So it can be very quick. The rest of the time is taken up in safety testing, obviously.
1: And can you explain a little bit in layman's terms what exactly is messenger RNA and and how it works and and also how it differs to a traditional vaccine?
3: Yeah, well early nineteen sixties the pioneers of genetics are trying to work out how a gene gets how a gene communicates with the world. You know, a gene is information, but how does it get that information out there? And then they they simultaneously, Jim Watson and Sidney Brenner, leading teams doing experiments, suddenly twig what's going on, which is the the gene makes a temporary copy of itself and sends it out into the cell from the nucleus. And that copy is then used to construct proteins. The temporary copy is called messenger RNA. And and it's obviously a very important part of, of the machinery of every cell. But until very recently, it wasn't used in any way as a therapy. And then someone called Katalin Kariko, a Hungarian scientist working in the United States, started working on the idea that actually maybe all you need do for a vaccine or other kind of therapy is send the messenger RNA that you want into a a body, into a cell, uh, and get the body to make the protein that, that you need, whether to create an immune reaction or for some other reason. Now, it turned out not to work. She spent more than a decade, trying to make it work, getting rejected for grant applications, getting demoted, and then eventually they discovered a clever little technical fix, her and someone called Drew Weissman, where you substitute pseudouridine for uridine in the, in the text of the message on the messenger, and it escapes the surveillance of the cells MI5, as I put it in my article. Uh, and so it gets in and actually works.
1: And Stuart, you've written about scientific blunders and negligence, and I suppose with vaccines, people are always a little bit wary at the start. Do you think enough due diligence and testing has been done for this new mRNA technology?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I actually think, and well, maybe we can discuss this, I think there's reason that we could have had this faster had we tried human challenge trials, that is, deliberately infecting people, consenting people, <laughs> sorry, with the virus earlier in the year. Um, as Matt said, this was developed in January. And we could have had a a better idea of which uh, vaccines worked had we run some human challenge trials earlier in the year. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of the other COVID science has not been as kind of revelatory and impressive as the as the vaccine research. Um, Research on treatments research on the actual spread and transmission of the virus um, has been rather unedifying in many cases, although there's been some wonderful work done too. The vaccine trials really have been a bright point, I think, in transparency and openness, and also in actually getting really important results. The one outlier there is the AstraZeneca trial for the, the, for the Oxford vaccine, where it looks like they're going to have to run a whole new trial because they had a bit of a, a few blunders in the administration of the vaccine where they gave the wrong dose to many of the participants and, 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 and so on. So um, we're really a bit unsure about that vaccine. And remember it came out and people said Maybe it's got sixty-two percent efficacy. Maybe it's got ninety percent efficacy. We're not one hundred percent sure. Um, so there's a bit more work to be done on 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 that one. But I think you know people who are are um, maybe hesitant about vaccines or whatever can be pretty reassured because the the you know these have been in, in trials for a very long time. So the safety profile really has been tested really quite strongly.
1: One of the things you mentioned, Matt, in your piece is this concern about fertility. I mean, is there there any kind of reason to be worried on that front? You you suggest not, but...
3: No, I I think the fertility worry is is an extraordinarily obscure, far-fetched and implausible idea. It's based on the notion that there is a crucial gene in the human body called syncytin, which enables pregnancy to happen. And it does so by causing the fusion of cells. So you get a sort of border crossing point between the embryo and and the parent uh, in the placenta as a result of this fusion. Now, syncytin turns out to be a gene that's descended from viruses. It comes from some ancient infection that our ancestors caught many millions of years ago, and it was tamed and put to good use, this gene. And that's a fascinating story in its own right. But the implication is that if a virus gets around the body by causing cells to fuse and therefore jumping from cell to cell, as this one does, then maybe uh, if we the protein that does that, which is the spike protein on the surface of, of the virus, if you get an immune reaction to that, then you might get an immune reaction to pregnancy. This is implausible for several reasons. First, because there's lots of viruses that go around fusing cells. None of them have ever caused a pregnancy problem before. Uh, and secondly, because the particular sequence that was identified as being similar in the syncytin gene and in the virus gene is actually a very common sequence found in all sorts of proteins, in, you know, in muscle and every other part of your body. So uh, it just doesn't add up as a fear. It's a very good example of how you can stir up Excess worry. In fact, the beauty of these messenger RNA vaccines is that all you're putting in is a short section of information, a a message. It's wrapped in a bubble made of oil, uh, and that can't produce an immune reaction. There's no proteins going in at all, whereas most traditional viruses, you're sticking a bunch of proteins in, which are going to cause various reactions and they might not work in the way you expect. Whereas in this case, you're putting in the very specific thing you want and nothing else. And all you have to do for a new disease is change the text of that message. That's what makes it such a beautiful system.
1: Stuart, looking back a bit more broadly at the past year in terms of scientific development, what do you think have been the most important and perhaps sort of exciting lessons from a scientific point of view?
4: I think there's been some great lessons in terms of global collaboration. These vaccine trials have been you know, done across lots of different countries and lots of different types of, of vaccine. I mean, one of the amazing things about it has been that we've funded, I think with great foresight, we funded lots and lots and lots of different types of vaccine, the messenger RNA one and all sorts of other different types. Uh, and so we had this huge portfolio of possible vaccines that might work. It served us very well because we we got one that worked very quickly. Had it not worked, we would have had other candidates ready to go, waiting in the wings, which I think is you know uh, was a really great strategy. But the downsides of the COVID pandemic for science have been. It's not necessarily that they're new lessons; it's that they that it's kind of highlighted or underlined. Previous problems that we had in the scientific system. So scientists have been desperate to publish stuff. We know that scientists have this publish or perish system where they're constantly having to push papers out to lengthen their CVs. And you can kind of see that in uh, many of the studies that have come up. A huge flood of, of, uh, of, of research, not all of which is particularly useful, or worthwhile. I mean, did we really need a study that showed how the uh, the, the the length of your index finger and your ring finger, the the, the ratio of of that, related to COVID uh, rates? I'm I'm not really sure if that was a really particularly worthwhile uh, research. And in fact, it's been shown to be rather dodgy once someone looked into the stats in a bit more detail. But but I think the problems of publisher perish, and also the problems of just bad research. I mean, we have the whole hydroxychloroquine saga, where you started off with really poorly designed studies being published in journals where the scientists themselves were the editor of the journal. And then it it moved on to, you know, Donald Trump coming out and saying, this is a, this is a great thing on the basis of not that much evidence. Then you had the sort of reaction to that. You had scientists at Harvard who caught onto this particularly strange data set from uh, this company, Surgisphere. They published this, uh, two studies in some of the top medical journals in the world, The Lancet, and the New England Journal of Medicine, that were based on this data set which they had never looked at in any detail, they'd never seen the raw data, and yet they published these studies in in the world's top journals and they had to be retracted two weeks later, this happened in June, because uh, the data were, you know, the provenance of the data was extremely questionable. And so, you know, these are things which we've seen before, we've seen badly designed studies, we've seen scientific biases, we've seen all this sort of stuff before. But now it just seems much more important than ever. Now it seems much more uh, in our face than ever because we're all constantly thinking about science. We're, we're desperate for the new treatment to, to appear.
1: Matt, I suppose looking back, it does seem as though it's been a year of innovation in all sorts of ways, whether it's from people wearing masks on the tube to these new vaccines. Do you think it sometimes takes something as dramatic as a pandemic to force us to advance?
3: Um, before I answer that, I just, I just want to uh, commend Stuart and his, his wonderful book on, on how science goes wrong sometimes because he's, he's rightly a scourge of, of misdesigned science. And, and I think there are some ripe examples of that this year. I would add to the ones he's mentioned, uh, essentially modeling has not had a good year and science has had to relearn the lesson that, that it's not very good at forecasting the future of non, non-linear systems. And another one is the pangolin uh, genomes, which were thought to play a very important part in the, the origin of the virus. Well, you know, we've now found that, that four papers published the same couple of days, all saying that they'd found different versions of pangolin viruses that are closely related to the one that we've been catching, were actually looking at the same sample. <laughs> and so they don't replicate each other at all. You know, so there's, a, there's some, some murky stuff going on that does need to be sorted out. But back to your main point about whether we, we have managed to spark a lot of beneficial innovation. yes. On the whole, though, we can get plenty of innovation in times of prosperity. We don't need a war or a crisis or a pandemic uh, to to turn innovative. And in fact, an awful lot of innovation will have been delayed or made more difficult as a result of uh, the pandemic. But you're right that in terms of discovering that we can do vaccines quicker, that that regulators can be faster in responding, um, those kind of things have certainly made progress. And, you know, we've all got used to working online. That's going to change the world pretty dramatically, I suspect.
1: Stuart, finally, looking ahead to next year, what scientific innovation would you like to see us focus on?
4: I think um, we we need more vaccines and different types of vaccines. So I think the the vaccines that have been developed so far are ones in your arm, a shot in your arm. And what we need are other types like uh, nasally administered vaccines, which will have a much higher likelihood of stopping transmission of the the virus rather than just uh, infection. Now, there are reasons to think that the vaccines we've got stop transmission as well as infection, but we're not sure. There's a lot more research to be done on that. They definitely stop disease, stop symptoms, but not necessarily transmission. And so um, if we really want to get rid of this thing, and I, you know, I'm I'm kind of pro pushing it as close to eradication as we possibly can. We need vaccines that will stop people transmitting it. So I I really hope that we focus on those, including using human challenge trials, if we possibly can.
3: Uh, well, just quickly to, to add to what Stuart said, that there is evidence just this week that the Moderna version of the vaccine does uh, prevent transmission. So that's that's exciting possibility. But also, don't neglect the possibility that the this messenger RNA technology might be a way of uh, attacking cancer, it might be a way of attacking allergies, uh, it might be a way of attacking Alzheimer's even. I mean, that's far-fetched, but, you know... This is a new way of getting the body to do what you want it to do to, to cure itself, and it could be very exciting in all sorts of ways.
4: Just a few years ago, the mRNA technology was a, was a far-fetched thing, and now we're
1: going to save the world with it. Thank you, Matt and Stuart. Finally, the Christmas issue is full of fantastic writing about books. Two highlights a Sam Leith's interview with the American novelist Mary Gateskill and writer Elif Shafak's review of a non-fiction book on how heavy metal changes the way we see the world. To talk about their pieces and the best reads of the year, Sam and Alif join me now. Sam, in the Christmas issue this year, you interviewed the novelist Mary Gateskill. What were your impressions of her going into the discussion?
5: She's funny because she's a writer who, you know, is a slightly intimidating writer because she's extraordinarily kind of clear-eyed and unsentimental. And what's what's remarkable about her own print is how she's never goes to, for the easy answer or the pat sort of position. And that kind of, I think I call it pitiless noticing in the, you know, in the piece, you sort of think, oh, you know, is she, is she going to be this very sort of fierce and intimidating person? And she's funny because she's just, you can feel an absolutely steely intelligence, but she's very no-nonsense and very, and very charming as well. it was a great privilege to, to speak to her, actually, because she's one of those people who I think is not so well-known on this side of the Atlantic, but... Really is a remarkable writer.
1: And can you tell us about her new essay, Lost Cat?
5: Well, it's, it's sort of a new essay. I mean, it's a bit of a cheat because actually she published it, I think about 10 years ago, as an essay in was it the New Yorker, probably, which is where most of her stuff goes. And it's been republished very enterprisingly in this country by Daunt Books as a sort of standalone book. And it's very, very good and interesting. It, just, it, it basically, you know, it's about a cat and she was staying at the Writers' Retreat in Tuscany. It's a very famous Writers' Retreat there, run by the Countess von Redzori. Elif, you've probably been there. Anyway, while she was there, she came across these stray cats that were in terrible shape, and her heart melted, and she ended up adopting one of them slightly against her own, her own better judgment. And she took this back with her to the States, and then the cat went missing, just sort of And it's just, it's a book about, and again, this is one of the things that's sort of paradoxical or or surprising. You know, you think of her as a very, very unsentimental writer. And actually, it's about her grief for this cat and how, how kind of she goes slightly crazy, you know, for months and months. She's traipsing around in the snow, trying to find it. She's putting up posters. And one of the cruxes of that book is her saying... It's not sentimentality. People talk about sentimentality. And actually, the loss of a pet, as she describes in our interview, is is the sort of door through which other larger griefs walk. Because the book, Being Rory Gates, isn't just about the cat. It, it opens out to talk about her relationship with her sisters, her relationship, a tricky relationship with her late father. You know, there's a sort of thing about motherhood in there as well, because she doesn't have children herself, but there were these two quite disadvantaged children who she, she sort of adopt, semi-adopted as part of a mentoring scheme. So she saw them every summer for s- several years. And it's about her relationship with those two children as they grew up and the closeness and the difficulties. and It's it's all about love, basically.
1: Elif, you've also written for The Christmas Issue. Um, you reviewed Dan Franklin's new book on heavy metal music. And you reveal that you are yourself a big heavy metal fan. Can you tell us a bit about the book and also a bit about how you write? Because you you say in the piece that you listen to heavy metal, which listeners might find surprising to hear.
6: Yeah, uh, thank you. And And I really enjoyed writing this piece. And I appreciated the opportunity because it's one of those subjects that I find a little bit difficult to talk about. Heavy metal is not a subject that comes up often among literary circles. And sometimes people do not expect, you know, when they look at me, when they read my writing, they do not expect me to enjoy this kind of music. But I always have been a heavy metal fan ever since my early youth. Uh, And it's interesting to me because it started in Istanbul, it started in Turkey. Maybe people don't expect um, young people in Turkey to listen to this kind of music, but I was, and many people were. But the thing is, it never declined, it never dwindled over the years. It always came with me. And I realized I write better, I focus better if I'm listening to heavy metal on loudspeakers, if I can, otherwise on earphones, and if it's on repeats, like a like a loop. So when I got hold of Dan Franklin's book, I enjoyed it tremendously. And I and I and I love the way he analyzes, but without overanalyzing. Because there's a very thin line there, you shouldn't you know, demystify, it's, it's more like he wants to remystify heavy metal, and that really resonated with me.
1: You say in your piece that Franklin slowly arrives at the conclusion that heavy metal is a means of acknowledging the parts of ourselves that we'd often rather not
6: embrace. Did, did his book make you reassess your relationship with heavy metal? Indeed, and also it made me realise, um, it made me happy when, when he talks about there's some kind of loyalty because heavy metal is not a fashion, it's not a trend that comes and goes. Uh, it's a mystery actually, in the sense that how come in a world where everything is consumed so fast, think about it, you know, it's this fast culture, information world, we don't have patience for anything, and yet heavy metal fans have this loyalty, this passion um, that keeps going, and they also want to pass it on to the next generations. So, to see that in myself and to read that in this book and to realise, actually, it's, it's so common, that kind of loyalty, uh, and in a way it's very mysterious, that also very close to my heart. Sam, were you surprised to hear about Elif's writing technique? I was a bit. I mean, I'd,
5: I asked Elif to write this piece because I'd, I'd seen... an I'd interview she'd given about a year ago that, you know, she said I was great heavy metal fan. <laughs> really? That's not what I expected from Elif at all. And I tend to kind of salt these unusual facts about writers away. If you know, there's something I know that a writer is has an interest in that you wouldn't know they had an interest in. I'm always looking for ways to try and get them to write about it. You know, like for years I've carried around the fact that A.S. Byatt was devoted to the cop show, The Bill. You know, any opportunity to get to talk about The Bill was the way forward. And I just liked the idea of Ilif writing these sort of lyrical, moving, rather sort of sometimes almost magic realist narratives. With you know, cradle of filth or crepitating bowel erosion, pounding away in her headphones, and it just sort of seemed to me very funny and unexpected and interesting. And I think you learn something about a writer from from what their you know unexpected passions are.
1: And do you know of other writers who have sort of similar music that they might listen to, or similar kind of approaches to writing?
6: Not, not really. But I'm always I'm always curious, you know. So when we get together at festivals, literary events. And when this theme comes up uh, i'm I'm always curious to to hear what people are listening, but usually, of course, I can't generalize but but many people love silence, so I think they focus better and they work better when there's neat silence all around. Well, that does seem to be the case, doesn't it?
5: That more often than not, writers don't like to have that sort of interference i mean I know some some you know Ian Rankin is devoted to music and very obviously so and I wouldn't be surprised if he writes with music on Nick Hornby obviously is a great you know his musical tastes David Keenan's musical tastes you know some writers it's very it's very upfront in their work but but the idea of having the songs on repeat and if do you think it changes or colors what you're writing because of course music creates an emotion and when you're writing you're often trying to recreate or or capture an emotion do you do you find if you've got a very sort of angry and anguished track going round and round and round in your ear that you find your writing it's somehow interfering with whatever it is you're trying to write?
6: You know I think so much of this is is a bit irrational maybe emotional you listen to things and you love them and you don't really want to know or analyze in that moment why am I enjoying this. But over the years, if it becomes, if it turns into a pattern, which in my case I can see there has been a pattern for a long time, um, then yes, I think I think you're right. And and maybe I find it easier to concentrate if I'm listening to heavy metal or progressive metal, industrial metal in particular, metal core sometimes, some some bands mostly Scandinavian bands. So over the years I moved towards these genres that maybe not many people listen to. And it speaks to me. It really captures my soul, my mood in that moment. I don't think it has a calming effect on me, but more like the fire, the energy in the music. It really motivates me to to, to work and, and, and maybe pushes me into this zone where I feel I am on my own, because writing is a very solitary task. You know, it's, it's just loneliness, it's pure loneliness. It's not teamwork at all, especially for novelists. So I can enter that zone of loneliness much better and quicker when I'm listening to heavy metal music. And, and, and repeat, listening to, that, to those songs on repeat, I think helps me to stay there grounded. And then I love the themes, the, the, the music itself, and I think it's very much what life is like. All those contrasts, particularly in gothic, heavy metal, where I can see the opposites, the dialectics of life, the softness, but also the aggressiveness, the darkness and the light, you know, they're all there.
1: That, that's one of the points that you make in your piece, that metal is a response to the darkness of life. And obviously that's a theme that has somewhat defined this year. Have you found heavy metal particularly consoling this year?
6: It's very interesting. I mean, there, there are so many bands, of course, When you compare it with what it used to be, the metal scene used to be 20 years ago, all those big bands, internationally very well-known names, we don't have that kind anymore, but we're not living in that kind of world either. So right now it's more a bit more fractured. There's so many bands, and I think the internet, the social media gave them a chance also to make themselves heard. I can see this big, uh, movement in particularly Scandinavian music, or that's the type of music that I listen to. But recently, for instance, I discovered a Mongolian band, a Mongolian heavy metal band. So I'm very interested in heavy metal bands that are not necessarily centered in Europe or centered in America. Although, of course, they're amazing uh, underground uh, bands, if, I, if that's the right term. Uh, coming from places like California, Detroit, Boston, I listen to them too. And Australia. Australia is also big in this scene. So, um, yeah, I, I try to cast my nets wide and listen to different bands from different in- international backgrounds.
1: Looking a bit more broadly at the past year, Sam, what what sort of genres or themes have you been drawn to when you've been reading?
5: Well, I mean, I, most of my reading is is for... You know, it's for the spectator because I do this weekly podcast. So I'm I'm sort of drawn by what's coming out. I mean, the main defining thing of this year has obviously been coronavirus and the way in which it's just played havoc with publishing schedules. But, you know, they've managed to get some books out and some very good ones. There was a point in spring when it just suddenly everything vanished. You know, it was like looking at the edge of a cliff you got emails flooding in saying, you know, this book that was supposed to be out next week is now out next year or the year after next, you know? And then after a couple of months, they all sort of caught their breath and went, actually, this isn't going anywhere fast. We need to keep publishing books. People are reading books. You know, that was one of the great things that, you know, lot, we all know Jeff Bezos has, you know, quintupled his wealth or whatever. Thanks to people just saying, you know, I've got nothing to do, right? I'm buying a book on Amazon. You know, some, some remarkable things have come out. Um, I really admired and, kicked myself for having missed, when it first came out, Shuggy Bane, which won the Booker Prize. I mean, we, we did a podcast with, with the author um, a couple of weeks ago, sort of by way of apology, because it was, you know, oh, it's another first novel, one of ten that week, whatever, you know, we haven't got room for it. And, and actually, it's a pretty remarkable piece of work. Another book that surprised me, because I hadn't turned out, you know, to be really astonishing, was this book's reviewed in the new issue, Life of Christian Huygens, which was just one of those books that leaves, you know, gives you a window onto somebody you barely knew their name and realised they were one of the sort of towering figures of early modern science. And that's, you know, it t- taught me all about geometry and science and physics, as well as teaching me about this extraordinary period in the European Enlightenment. And the other book that actually I thought was a knockout because unique and has been much fated everywhere was Craig Brown's. Book about the Beatles um one two, three, four, the Beatles in time, because you know here is a subject unlike Christian Huygens that everybody thinks they know everything about, and he makes it fresh because he has a completely unique approach in literary terms to his nonfiction I mean it's just he he does something like nobody else, this sort of mosaic portrait, and it's deeply poignant weirdly, as well as being hugely funny.
6: Alif, what have you been enjoying reading this year? Uh, by my reading lists have been very eclectic. They usually are, but especially this year, I love reading fiction and nonfiction together. And this year I have been judging the Pan Nabokov Prize, which is uh, given to an author for their lifetime achievement. And um, that means you read uh, as many books of, of the same author as you can. Uh, and, and we have a long list and then the short list. So I've been, and, and that has been a very good type of k- kind of work for me, reading, because as you go back in time you and read different books by the same author over the years, you also see the changes in their style, um, in their interests. I enjoy that a lot. We are about to announce our winner, so I can't give you <laughs> the, the, the names yet uh, or the short list yet. But in addition to that, because I'm working on a new novel, I have been reading extensively on completely unrelated issues, history, nature, whether it's trees or or politics, but things that are related to to, to my book, but seemingly unrelated at at, at first glance. So my reading lists are usually very multidisciplinary.
1: And Sam, do you think the pandemic has changed literature in any way? I
5: don't think noticeably i expect next year we'll get in McEwan's pandemic book but i i don't think i mean in as much as people write about or lots of people write about the times whether obliquely or directly you know we're going to see it reflected in the publishing of the next couple of years but i think it's hard to to sort of make a you know more profound remark than that about how it's affected literature because you know literature is it's a house with many 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 mansions and fundamentally writers just keep writing and in fact if they're confined to quarters that doesn't do them any harm at all. Beryl Bainbridge used to have a message on her answer phone that said Beryl is writing her book and so can't come out to any parties so please don't invite her or words of that effect. <laughs> text you know keeping writers at home is a good thing for the the literary body politic I think.
6: Elif just finally have you found it easier to write this year? Being at home. No, not really. Actually, I remember at the very beginning of the, the pandemic early on, there were some messages shared on social media, uh, some of them with all the good intentions shared by publishers to saying, at least for writers, it will be a re- an easy, kind of an easier ride because writers are solitary creatures and they're used to working at home. You know, it won't be much of a difference for them in terms of their daily lives or routines. It hasn't been exactly like that. For me, personally, I found myself struggling and, and asking myself, is this the right thing to write? Is this what I should be doing at this moment in time? You know, um, In a way, it's almost like an existential questioning. Does it really matter if you, if you move that comma to the next sentence, if you find the perfect synonym? Does it really matter when so much is happening outside the window, when there's so much injustice, when there's a pandemic, when people are dying? You know, the world is changing. The world, as we know, in my opinion, is no more. But the new world is not born yet. So we're in this moment of in-betweenness, which creates a lot of uncertainty and anxiety and, and also fear and confusion. So as a writer, I think you you, you can't stay outside of that. It affects me. And, and I wrote a, a little book. It was almost like a manifesto it's called How to Stay Sane in an Age of Division. That was very much the product of the pandemic. And I think about this a lot because when you read people like Doris Lessing, she has this amazing essay in which she talks about literature being analysis after the event. Writers need some time you know, to process. So in that respect, maybe most of literature is written in, with a hindsight, in retrospect. I understand and I respect that but also maybe because of the age we're living in, literature has to become analysis during the event. So both after, but also during, and you need to respond. So in that sense, I think we will see new books and maybe new quests among the literary community uh, very much shaped by the emotions and, and the necessities of our times. Thank you, Sam, and thank you, Alif.
1: And that's it for the next few weeks. If you buy a copy of The Christmas Issue, you'll find everything we've discussed, as well as Theresa May's Christmas cake recipe, Mervyn King on New Monetary Theory, and Justin Welby on Finding Hope. Thank you for listening, and we wish you a very Merry Christmas.
0: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12 week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk voucher.